I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, we're looking at verses 13 through 21. So we'll look at the second half of this chapter. And while you're turning there, just want to point out one frustrating tendency of Christians, and, I, and I'm just going to talk about one. There are many frustrating tendencies among Christians, as we know, right? But one frustrating tendency is this incessant search for innovative ways to worship God. New, new methods, new practices, new people, right, to, to uh, listen to. And uh, we, we crave these novel means of approaching God, I think because we're not satisfied, right? We're, we don't like the results we're currently achieving, and so people who are generally dissatisfied with the depth of their spiritual experience, which to some degree is all of us, right, at some level, but when, we, when we're wholly dissatisfied or generally dissatisfied, All right, so people are generally dissatisfied with the depth of their spiritual experience, um, and they're prone to look for creative approaches to worship. Um, and, and that's why I think it's, it's important that we are grounded in historic Orthodox Christianity, that we have a connection to the church as it has existed from the beginning. Right? As, we become, as we become ignorant or naive of our tradition, of our past, we are prone to make mistakes, right? The same mistakes. So um, we, we do need to vigilantly preserve the truth from corruption of error. And I think innovative approaches to worship oftentimes are presented or treated as just neutral things to explore. Let's try it. Let's see if it works. If it doesn't, that's fine. It's just another neutral approach, right? We can try something different when the next person creates another idea or a different means. And, and so that, that's not the case. We need to consider innovative approaches to worship as at best being an unhelpful distraction from the ordinary means of grace. And at worst, they do teach another gospel. The, the message is transformed and impacted by the medium in which it's shared. And so you can actually be preaching a different gospel if you are out of accord with the prescription that God has given for worship. And I think that's a serious error to be aware of. So before we um, get into the passage, I think our, our passage this morning portrays the devastating consequences of false worship. Right? It takes us to the end result of not just a small and little compromise, but repeated compromises over time, right? It's that one degree of difference now that, that years down the road takes you miles off the target. And that's, that's what this gives us, is a picture of the consequences of false worship. This passage teaches and exhorts us by way of contrast. 
So it shows us that end result so that we will treasure all the more the prescription that God has given us for worship. And by seeing the end result of idolatry, we will value biblical worship all the more. And so the first section of Revelation contained letters to the seven churches, and it was encouraging those churches to persevere through persecution as well. A lot of them received a rebuke or a challenge to repent from any compromise with the culture, any compromise with the idols that were in their own city, right? Because they had begun to in, incorporate those, that idolatrous worship into their own practices, and God was rebuking them for that and calling them to repent in those letters, and then we looked at chapters 4 and 5, and it contained these visions of heaven. And, and one of the things we noticed in that chapter was, or in chapter 4, was these creatures, these four living creatures that are described really as, as hybrid creatures. They, they have features of this world, um, and then they also have features from above, from, from heaven. There's a, this hybrid, and they, and they picture creation at harmony with its creator. It's, it's creation, um, you know, living at peace with its maker. And now in chapter 9, we're introduced to more hybrids. We already saw the locusts, these demonic locusts. They were hybrids. They had human features, if you remember and recall the description of them. And we'll see the same thing in our passage today with, with the horses. There's, there's these features and descriptions of, of earth, of things in, that, are, that are related to earth, and yet they're also uh, combined with features from below. They're not features above like the heavenly creatures, but they're demonic creatures. They're a combination of this world and the world below. And that obviously represents the creation in rebellion against creator. Creation in alignment with the satanic destructive forces of evil, right? And so they represent creation in rebellion against his creator, released to inflict misery and death. And Mounts, Robert Mounts points out, the mission of the locust was to torment. You saw that in verse 5 of chapter 9? In verse 15, the mission of the cavalry, or the horses, is to kill. So there's an escalation in the harm that they bring. So while creation was cleansed in the first four trumpets, talk about how it was affecting creation itself, impacting the environment, which obviously has an impact on the inhabitants of the environment. But as that creation was impacted in the first four trumpets, now we've transitioned to, in, in the uh, fifth and sixth trumpet, um, unbelievers are being judged for their rebellion. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for revelation. We thank you for giving us this book that is challenging to understand it's mysterious, and yet we see the big picture is portraying your sovereign power, your sovereign authority, and the fact that you will bring victory, that you will bring your children home, that there will be victory in Christ, and that the forces of evil will be brought to nothing, that they will be destroyed and cast into the abyss. So, Lord, as we Consider this passage. I do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth, that you would soften our hearts to believe and respond to this in obedience, and that we would honor and glorify you as we listen. Speak to us now. 
For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me, beginning in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode upon them. They, were, they wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like the lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders for their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Amen. This is God's holy word. We do see that same theme there, the very end there, their lack of repentance, just like the Israelites had done in Ezekiel 18. So the first point I want to look at here is verses 13 through 16, the release of the demonic force. And if you're following along in your outline, that's your first point, is the release of the demonic force. As soon as the sixth angel blew his trumpet, John's attention was brought to the golden altar again, this heavenly altar in verse 13. This was the altar beneath which the souls of martyrs were resting, and they were crying out, actually, right, under that altar, crying out for the Lord to vindicate his name, to bring vengeance upon their persecutors. That was in in chapter 6, verse 9. And then later on in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, their their prayers, the prayers of the souls of the martyrs, the saints who had been slain in this present age, their prayers were being added to the prayers of all the saints and then offered to God along with a fragrant incense offering by the angel. Right? It, was, it was being sweetened by that incense and offered to God. Well, here now, we are reminded of that altar. So we're reminded that God is still answering the prayers of his persecuted church. And so we should already begin to anticipate that more divine acts of justice are about to follow. That he's about to bring vindication upon his name. Vengeance on, on the, uh, the persecuted church. Uh, upon the, you know, those who have persecuted the church. So we hear, we read in, in this section, though, that these angels were bound. Um, it says in verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So these angels that are bound at the river Euphrates, they symbolize God's sovereign restraint of the evil spiritual realm. Now, these are not good angels who are being the fact that they're having to be held back and restrained implies that they're destructive. They're wanting to go out and wreak havoc. And so these are fallen angels who are being restrained from their destructive wrath until now. 
Right? The language is similar to that of the sixth bowl. If you look at chapter, you don't have to turn there now, but in chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, you also have the bowl being poured out into the Euphrates. It mentions this, this, the Euphrates River again. And so the same event is being described there as, as is being described here from a different angle. And many commentators point out that Euphrates, the Euphrates River was this natural border to the promised land. So the idea was that the, there were forces, um, uh, neighboring forces, armies on the other side of the Euphrates waiting to attack, and they were fearful of that attack. So it puts that image in their mind as they're thinking about these angels departing from Euphrates and releasing a horde of mounted horses. Um, and so they, they point that out, and the idea that, uh, so the idea that forces are being released from this region points to military invasion. So then the question is, is that invasion, speaking of, a, of modern warfare or of real military invasion, or is it speaking of spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare? Well, I think the description of the horses, just like the description of the locusts, leads us in the latter direction. It leads us to think of this as, a, as kind of a peeling back behind the scene of the physical world and a look at the spiritual realm. It's a look at the spiritual warfare that's taking place. Not that we get to see that, but that is what John is seeing in his vision. And, it's, and the description, what you find over and over again in this chapter is the word like. Right? It's, it's simile. It's metaphor. He's not seeing it as it truly is, as if these are real creatures, but they're, they're, they're the spiritual realm. Right? They're, they're not visible to the eye, to a physical eye, but they are true. That's, this warfare is generally taking place. Right? And so um, it could imply that that spiritual warfare or that spiritual influence is behind the... Um, you know, national leaders. And so that's how some would interpret it, right? That, that you have national leaders standing opposed to God's purposes who are then being influenced by the demonic forces. And, and so that's one way of kind of combining the two ideas. But I do think it's primarily focused upon spiritual warfare here. So the description is, is reminiscent of, of prophetic warnings to Israel regarding their own judgment and the judgment of their neighbors that stem from the north and the east. Right, during their, when they were being, uh, w- went into Babylonian exile, that was, this was the same kind of warnings that they received. And we've been reading them in Ezekiel. So these angels have been prepared for this very hour, day, month, and year. God is in complete control of all spiritual warfare. Not only does he limit the duration of their affliction, but he also controls the scope of their affliction, right? We see the, <clears throat> the increase of severity from the locusts who were allowed to torment to the horses that are allowed to kill, but they're still restricted. They're not given just, you know, uh, uh, the ability to, to kill everyone. They're told you can kill a third. Of course, that's, that's devastating, but, that is, but that's still a limit. And what it shows is that they are not the ones in control. They have to submit to a higher authority. God remains in control even over this, even over spiritual warfare. He's the one who sets the boundaries around demonic activity. And so finally, in, in verse 16, we see this, the size of this army. 200 million mounted troops are released. It says... Uh, 
two times, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Again, this is, um, this is in the same language as we found in Revelation 5, speaking of the myriad of angels that are surrounding the throne of God. So these demonic angels or these fallen angels are rival with the, the heavenly uh, crowd of angels. So it's not meant to be a precise number as if there were literally 200 million, uh, but it's an overwhelming horde, an innumerable, uncountable group that it's just overwhelming in John's view. He actually can't count them. He, he heard the number, right? He's, it doesn't say he sat there and counted. It says he, he could only hear the number. They were really uncountable for him. So if God is sovereign over the severity and extent of all judgment that falls upon mankind for their rebellion, then our first concern ought to be alignment with his prescription for worship. Right? If, if we could worship God in any way that we please, then judgment would be irrelevant. If we could have many paths to God, we could go through any different you know, method or, or, or person or object, we could create our own God and worship him, and it all leads to the same place, then why would anyone be judged? We would all become universalists, right? Unitarians. We would all think that, that everyone's going to be saved anyways. It doesn't really matter how you get there. Just get there, right, if you can. That's, that would be the idea. It's just universalism, but that's not what's taking place here, right? We we need to be in alignment with what he has prescribed for worship. If we could worship God in any way that we please, then judgment would be irrelevant. But because we know that God is judging false worship, then we know that he is concerned with how we approach him. All right, we know that we should be wary of any new spiritual method or practice that promises to give you some mysterious breakthrough of insight. We should be weary of anything that is extra biblical, that is outside of the ordinary means of grace that you need in order to really understand yourself or to really understand God rightly. Any kind of innovative approach, we need to be vigilant about rejecting that. So after John heard about the number of the mounted troops, he saw the horses and described the plagues of the demonic force. That's in verses 17 through 19. So their protective breastplates were fire, sapphire, and sulfur. Their heads were like lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur, which they then used to kill a third of mankind, in verse 18. Again, compared to the locusts, whose power was in their tails, you read that in verse 10, well, these horses had twice the power. In addition to the killing power of their mouths, they also had serpents for tails that inflicted harm. And so the horses, like the locusts, are meant to be terrifying. Right? These rebellious hybrids are bent on the destruction of everyone. It, and it's, it's hard to duplicate John's experience without visuals, but we need to use our imagination here. Right, the demonic force is described in compounding metaphors. They are horses with heads like fire-breathing lions and tails like serpents. They're like the Greek chimera. The use of compounding metaphors is similar to God's description of the great sea creature in Job, chapters 40 and 41, behemoth, 
he's called. And what's conveyed there, as well as here in Revelation, is that none of us would ever want to confront this creature at any point in our lives. It would be terrifying to do so. And with the addition of the the serpent's tail, there's affirmation or confirmation that that these are demonic beings. They're connected to the serpent, the great serpent, their prince. And so their primary intentions, like, like Satan, is to deceive people and to destroy their hope through torment and death. So John is given a visible picture here of the spiritual world at this present time, in this present age. He is seeing, a, in militaristic fashion, the forces of evil with their intent to harm and destroy rebellious mankind. So remember, these demonic forces are restricted from harming those who have been sealed by God. We read that in verse 4. Their targets were restricted to those who had not turned away from their sin and turned to God, who had not been sealed by God. These forces could only inflict harm upon the unsealed of humanity. And so... Again, saints have been sealed as a promise of protection from the deception of the demonic force. So we're not meant to interpret this passage, I don't believe, as, inter- as, as meaning there's going to be a literal invasion of fire-breathing horses at some point in the future. Right? Even less are we supposed to transpose some element of modern warfare upon each element of the vision. Here's how... Michael Wilcock explains that. He, he says, so that the horse's mouths are, like frame, are, are supposed to be flamethrowers, or the horse's tails are bombers, and so on. The, the Euphrates from which all this military paraphernalia comes is Russia or China or whatever the current bogey may be, right? Iraq. Um, it wouldn't make any sense to the previous centuries of church history. What? What does seem to be clear, though, in this entire chapter is that throughout the history of this present age, between the first and second coming of Christ, there will be no shortage of rebellious, you know, practice of religion, idolatry. There won't be any shortage of idolatry. All right, we do not get the impression that postmillennialists suggest of the church in this ever-increasing influence upon the culture. Right, where we get the impression from this text that, that the kingdom of evil is growing alongside the kingdom of God. Instead of the kingdom of evil gradually losing its strength to the point that it's almost non-existent, no, we, we get the idea that it's, it's pressing along strong, and it has to be cut off and cast into the abyss when Christ returns. But until that day, you can anticipate this ongoing and unabated spiritual warfare. And our hope is only in the, re- the second coming of Christ. Our hope is, is in the, the fact that we, as the people of God, are sealed by God, but we still will face opposition. We still will face that throughout this age. And when we have a better understanding of the consequences of false worship, I think we're more inclined to get involved Right? We, we realize that we cannot simply stand by and idly watch people worship false gods. We're more inclined to correct, to rebuke, to teach others 
We are compelled to listen to Jude's exhortation to save others by snatching them out of the fire because we realize the consequences are devastating. The consequences are severe. They could not be more significant. And so the plagues of the demonic force will only kill a third of mankind. So what happens to the rest? What happens to the survivors? That's the third point, the survivors of the demonic force in verses 20 and 21. So you have the release of the demonic force first. You have, uh, secondly, the, the plagues of the demonic force. And then third, you have the survivors of the demonic force. Now, although the horses inflict the sting of death, they do not wipe out the rebellious people entirely. And as with most of the previous trumpets, once again, we find a connection to the plagues that fell upon Egypt. The tenth and final plague brought death to the firstborn male in every Egyptian household. And Israel was protected from harm because of the blood of the lamb that each household slaughtered during the first Passover. Uh, that, that happened the previous night. So in response, Pharaoh let the Israelites go with all their possessions. He frees them to go. And then shortly after that, he changes his mind as God hardens his heart once again in chapter 14, verses 4 through 8. He hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he gathers his army and then chases off after them and ultimately catches up to them at the Red Sea. And as the Israelites have parted through on dry land, miraculously opening up the sea for them, God, God opens up the sea and they pass through. Because of their arrogance and their pride, they, uh, the Egyptians chase in after them. And what happens? God encloses the sea upon them, and they're wiped away. So we, we see the same thing here, right? God hardened the heart of the Egyptians so that all of them would enter into, that, that whole army would enter into the Red Sea to their destruction. Well, the sixth trumpet here serves to harden the hearts of those who survived the plagues of the horses, only for, for them to subsequently, subsequently face the demise in the judgment of the seventh trumpet. So they're, they're, they're not dead yet. They survived the horses, but in the very next trumpet, they're going to be wiped out. Their hearts have been hardened in the same way that the soldiers had been hardened by the last plague and then entered into their destruction and demise. So if, even if you question the intention of the sixth trumpet here, the, the unquestionable result is hardened unbelief among the survivors. Right? Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. They did not repent. And so instead they were hardened. Rather than repenting and trusting God, they seemed to despise him all the more. Right? It's, it's been said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. And when affliction and pain... Do not get a person's attention. What can? When, when not even that kind of experience can turn you away from sin and turn you to God, then nothing will do. Rather than waking up humanity, these trumpets fall upon deaf ears. Rather than softening the hearts of the unsealed, these plagues harden their hearts. Just like Pharaoh. But if that was their purpose, maybe you wonder, 
is it disingenuous to even blast the trumpet? What's the point? All right, why warn them at all if God knew the warning would be unheeded? The trumpets are judgments that serve a theological purpose. Much like the plagues upon Egypt did, they provide an opportunity to show God's sovereign power and justice. After repeated opportunities to turn to God, there does come a time when it's too late. All they can do is sink deeper in their unbelief, and that is a terrifying thought for anyone who thinks they can simply wait until they're on their deathbed to make a parting declaration of faith. As believers, we should also respond to this with sobering expectation, right? That we will face opposition until the bitter end. The idea of a, a golden age leading up to Christ's return does not fit the reaction to, this, to these trumpet judgments that span the entire present age. But the encouragement is not to lose heart. That all of this is happening according to God's sovereign will, right? His providential plan. And so let us close by considering back uh, chapter 2, the, the letter that were written to the churches. And just one, one in particular, the letter to Thyatira in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Remember, the churches were called to repent of their idolatry. They were called to repent of their compromise with the culture in which they lived. And here's one example. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. We saw the same thing in Ezekiel 16, right, in reference to idolatrous Israel, the same kind of language. And so this connection can only mean one thing. It can only mean one thing. Idolatry is not simply something that is out there. It's not simply something that's outside the church. It's, it's a problem and, and something we need to prepare for and, embrace, or, and recognize can be within the church. Right? Idolatry in all of its varied manifestations must be exposed and corrected and killed or it will destroy a community. And that's not to say it'll prevail over the church of Christ because Christ will, pre- will prevent that from happening. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Christ. But over pre- specific communities, absolutely, the lampstand can be removed. And it has been many times. So true worship is exalted by the recognition of the futility and the inevitability of idolatry. Idolatry will destroy And so let us keep our eyes fixed upon Christ as the only hope of our salvation. Let us maintain a vigilant commitment to the ordinary means of grace, to the word of God, to the sacraments of of God, and to prayer. And let us persevere with confidence in the salvation that God will bring to completion through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this confident assurance we find here because we know that you are sovereign over all warfare, whether it be spiritual or earthly. 
physical, you are sovereign over every realm. And so we, we, that is why we come before you. That is why we worship you. That is why we, we give you praise. But we want to do so in the way that you teach us to do so. We want to be faithful. We don't want to lose sight of the gospel. We don't want to fall for the latest and greatest practices and methods that promise that promise um, new growth. Lord, we want, to, we want to be steadfast and firm upon the ordinary means of grace that you've given, that you've prescribed in your word. And so, Lord, we want to sing in response to this truth. We want to give you praise. We want to rejoice in the joy of our salvation. We want to participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We want to celebrate baptisms as often as we can Celebrate the promises that you have given to your covenant people. And Lord, we want and we know that we can only maintain that perseverance. We can only continue in that down that same path as your spirit guides us and leads us. And so show us more of yourself, Lord, in your word. And guard us and guide us from corruption. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.